Can we turn to Exodus 32 tonight, please? Exodus chapter 32 and Outer Banks. Okay, I just wondered. And uh, we're also in Romans 11. Romans 11. Exodus 32, a strange connection we'll be developing tonight. It's good to have the mayor of New Kensington with us tonight and his wife, Pastor and Mrs. Brown. I think you got a mega church there, you two. You got a mega church in town. You never told us about that. A few moments of silent preparation, please. Father, it's a pleasure to be swept up in the divine missions, swept into what the Holy Spirit is doing in these times. We pray that you will grant us the vantage point to see with the eyes of Christ and to have the insight that our Lord Jesus gave to the Apostle Paul. For in seeing this vision, we do not perish. And in seeing this vision of a glorified, risen, universally significant Savior, we can become an encouragement to so many more and a refuge for so many. We thank you for this privilege. We pray now that you'll enlighten the eyes of our heart so that we may see just how marvelous and how wonderful your salvation is. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Exodus chapter 32, just a paragraph here, an event in the history of Israel, which I think you, you may see will relate to our careful trek through Romans 11. The Lord also said to Moses in verse 9, the Lord said also to Moses, I have seen this people, and they are indeed a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger can burn against them and I can destroy them. Then I can make you into a great nation. But Moses intercede with Yahweh, his God. Lord, why does your anger burn against your people? You brought out of the land of Egypt, your people, notice this because it is a phrase that goes repeat repetitiously through the book of Deuteronomy. Your people, you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a strong hand. Why should the Egyptians say he brought them out with an evil intent to kill them in the mountains and wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your great anger. And change your mind about this disaster disaster planned for your people. Remember that you swore to your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, by yourself. And declare to them, I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky. And will give your offspring 
all this land that I have promised, and they will inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind. (laughs) The Lord changed his mind about the disaster he said he would bring on this people. And so then we'll take up again with Romans 11.1. Paul speaking. He says, I ask then, God has not rejected his people, has he? And I reply, most certainly not. For I myself am also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he previously chose? Or are you not aware of what the scripture says in the narrative about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have murdered your prophets. They have torn down your altars. I myself alone am left remaining, and they are seeking to kill me too. You'll find this in 1 Kings 19, especially verses 10 and 14. Paul's solidarity with Israel is not an expression of patriotism here. It is rather that he sees himself as an Israelite to be the prime example and proof of the God of Israel's will to save all of Israel. That's very important. Paul himself, and that's why I'm sort of going over this again in one sense. His solidarity with Israel, which he demonstrates all the way from Romans 9.1 through this passage. And it's very important that we understand that what I'm doing now in Romans 11 involves conclusions that are not just leapt over from Romans 9.1. They are built upon the reflections and the deliberations of Paul under the Holy Spirit's breathing, continue throughout, and they find culmination ultimately in Romans 11.32, God's intent to show mercy upon all, an intent which has to be realized because God's intention and his action ultimately are one. What he says, he does. What he intends, he fulfills. Nothing can stay his hand. Nothing can stop his power. So Paul expresses this solidarity with Israel, not as an expression of national patriotism. Paul isn't like some of the Christians today who wave the flag above the cross and who exalt their national flags above the banner of the universal symbol of God's love and justice, which is the cross. So rather, his solidarity with Israel is that he sees himself to be the prime example and in sense, an exhibit A in the courtroom, we could say, of God's Israel, the God of Israel's will to save all of Israel. We're pointing Always the pointer here heads toward Romans eleven twenty six. So all Israel will be saved. Just how does that occur? How does that come about? 
His apostleship to the nations does not neglect Israel. In fact, his apostleship to the pagan nations is with a view to the salvation of all of Israel because it is only when the totality of the nations comes in, enters the gates of the New Jerusalem as it is, or enters into the true people of God. It's only when the totality of the nations enters that all of Israel will be saved. So in one sense, Paul's ministry is directed toward the salvation of his people Israel because, again, the mystery that's hidden from the eyes of people who suppose they know things, like Paul said, I don't want you to be wise in your own estimation. Lots of people running around today wise in their own estimation. Or as we used to express it, a legend in their own minds. It's one thing to be a legend in your own time. Quite another to be a legend in your own mind. And that's what people are who assume they know. And they can build a case against God's mercy. As is revealed in the scriptures. And so Paul's gospel to the nations is intended toward the salvation of all of Israel because it is only when all of the nations enter into the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, when they enter into participation in the fidelity of the Messiah, that all Israel will be saved. Again, that's where the pointer is pointing, all the way from Romans 9.1, pointing to Romans 11.24 and 25, Lest you should be wise in your own estimation, you should know this mystery. And the mystery is that all the nations come in first, and then all Israel will be saved. The first, the first people chosen by God in history, shall be the last. And the last, the last people chosen in history by God, shall be first. And so all Israel will be saved. So it's not the case that God's mind or Paul's ministry is far from Israel's final final salvation. Sounds remarkably like it is in Exodus 32. God also, God is actually condescending here to show a human viewpoint of Israel. They're a stiff-necked people. They're an obdurate, stubborn people. They're an unbelieving and defiant people. And really what he's doing is saying to Moses, don't you think I should destroy them? I really would like to destroy them. And then just start all over just with you. But Moses revealed his conformity to the mind of God by stopping God's hand to do that by saying don't do that they're your people why do you want to get a bad reputation with the Egyptians do you want to have have you chosen these people brought them out by your power because they could never do it on their own brought them out of exodus And during the course of your salvation poured out great power and wrath on the enslavers. You brought your people out 
Just so the Egyptians could say, this God, this capricious God, chooses a people one minute, destroys them the next minute? What's wrong with you, God? And God, so God changes his mind. Does he really? Or was he just getting to, he was, was he just revealing to the readers of the present day? That's us. All these things are written for our admonition. As 1 Corinthians 10, 11 says, and as Romans 15, 3 and 4 say. They're written for our instruction, for our admonition. God was for us revealing that Moses had come into his own mind, had been conformed to God's own mind, never to forsake his people. So when God proposed this, it's like a father proposing to his son, what do you think I should do? Do you think I should do this? And his son says, oh, no, 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 you shouldn't do that. And the father's very pleased that the son says that. In fact, later on, Moses will say, blot me out. If you're going to blot these people out, blot me out instead. That begins to show us that he's conformed with the thinking of Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not the case that God's mind and Paul's ministry here is far from Israel's final salvation. Case is quite the contrary. Paul, no doubt at first, after his conversion, after his confrontation, we'll say, and his call, when he met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, he must have felt as alone as Elijah here when Elijah said, I alone am left. I think Paul had much more of a sympathy and empathy with Elijah's plea at first, at least, than we can imagine. As we know, in 1 Thessalonians 2.14, he, he even says they killed the Lord Jesus. They are the same kind of people that killed the prophets, and they're persecuting me now. They're persecuting my missionary team now. He has a sense there that he might have felt alone sometimes. He was certainly estranged from his own countrymen and kin, And if you read Acts 21, the whole of Jerusalem came out and their whole unanimous decision was that he wasn't worthy to live. That must have made him feel even more alone. He was rescued by Colonel Claudius Lysias and some double timing Some troops in full gear, marching double time, rescued him. If it weren't for them, Paul would have been dead. But it's not just the people of Jerusalem. He had the same problem in Ephesus. He said, I wrestled with wild beasts in Ephesus. And he wasn't talking about getting thrown into the arena of lions. He was talking about people in the Adamic ontology in the wrath of the Adamic ontology, almost tore him apart. If it weren't for the magistrate standing up and stopping the mob, he'd have been dead by the Gentiles. So he's been beaten by the Gentiles, beaten by the Jews. He's been pretty much beaten up by most of mankind. But in this all, he identified with his Savior. And so Paul at first after his conversion, may have felt alone like Elijah did in his time. But, like 
Elijah. He became quickly aware through God's revelation that a remnant existed. A remnant of believing Israelites, in fact, existed by the grace of God. And that this remnant was, and I want to give further definition to this term, was a prolepsis. If there's a one-word definition for prolepsis, it's anticipation. This remnant was an anticipation, a prolepsis. We could say tonight's message even, we could, the main question I'm really asking is, prolepsis, what is it? Or as Aquinas used to say in the Latin, quidsit. Prolepsis, quidsit. What is its quiddity? What is its essence? Quiddity is the whatness of a thing, the essence of a thing. Quidsit. Prolepsis, what is it? So Paul became aware, probably by a divine disclosure, but also by visiting churches and finding not only pagan believers, but also Israelite Israelite believers, Jewish Christians. There were thousands of them in Jerusalem alone and scattered throughout Judea. Some of them, however, were still, in fact, the majority of them were still committed to the cultus of Israel, to the by cultus, that doesn't mean cult. That's a, a term that means the religious liturgy of Israel and some of the their particular sacraments like circumcision and their kosher rites, etc. So Paul became aware that there was, in, a, in any case, a remnant of believing Israelites by the grace of God and that this remnant was a prolepsis of the eschatological total salvation of Israel, the salvation of all Israel. Please notice again, that's Romans eleven twenty six for that catchword and key phrase. So far in Romans 11, which presupposes Romans 9 and 10, There is nothing that eclipses, notice the reference, nothing that eclipses the vision of the Son, S-O-N, Jesus Christ, in his universally saving significance. There's nothing so far that eclipses it. In fact, I don't see anything in all the word of God that eclipses it, including the parable of the rich man in hell. That has nothing to do with a reality of an eternal place of damnation. I'm going to have to teach that again. There's some places in Luke we're going to have to revisit. If this vision has been eclipsed, it's through the limited horizon which interpreters of Paul see because of the imperfect perch that they're resting on. Or viewpoint, place of viewpoint. So if this vision has been eclipsed to the people of God and to the world, it's through the limited horizon which interpreters of Paul see because of the imperfect perch that they occupy to view the wider horizon. 
And the second reason is because of their unenlightened eyes. Just as a part of Israel was hardened and dulled in her senses. Notice that that hardening, that sclerosis, and that blindness, scatosis, the double disease, the double symptom disease, sclerosis and scatosis. Israel suffered from a hardening in part and for a time. The hardening was partial. The hardening was temporal, temporary. So just as one physician that didn't have the insight of another physician would look at a person and say, your blindness is permanent and there's nothing can be done from it for it. The great physician, God, looks upon Israel and says, your blindness is temporary. Someday it'll go away. It's always good to get a second opinion. Just as part of Israel was hardened and dulled in her senses by the very system of piety to which she was committed. God says, I'll make their table trapeza, where we get our word trapeze. I'll make their table trapeza, their whole system of piety, their table, a snare for them. It was their very cultic piety that blinded their eyes. So just as part of Israel was hardened and dulled in her senses by the very system of piety, also known as cultus, not to be confused with cult. Look that up if you want to. I guess you can Google it and find out the meanings. A lot of these terms, theological terms, have definition. They're not perfect, like the word salvation history is defined. You can just see it. Hit it up on Google and say, what is salvation history? And somebody will tell you. They'll give you a pretty good definition. So Israel was hardened and dulled in her senses by the very system of piety or cultus to which she was committed. So, listen carefully, the church today is hardened in part and dulled by its very traditions and by a literalism of interpretation of the often metaphorical scriptures and words of Jesus. The church is hardened in part and dulled by its very traditions and by a literalism of interpretation. Jesus confronted this head on in Mark seven fourteen and 15 when he said, you nullify the word of God by your very traditions. And by a crassly literal interpretation of the metaphorical words of Jesus, for example. Unless you drink my blood. They took that literally. They were offended. Now, these interpreters of Paul can compile a great case, they think, against the all-inclusive mercy of God. They can compile a great case. Some of you might have heard a great case compiled before you. A shocked relative may have written you a letter. And they've got whole lots of scripture there in the letter. They may compile a great case against the all-inclusive salvation of God. 
and mercy of God, but their case always crumbles with closer scrutiny. Their case against the mercy of God upon all reflects Elijah's plea against Israel. It doesn't mean they're not saved people. It means they're kind of like in the position that Elijah was in. Which intimates that Israel is worthy of divine wrath for its actions, or certainly there is a group of people in the world that are deserving and should get the full brunt of your wrath. God has not rejected his people whom he previously chose, however, Elijah. If he were to choose a people as his inheritance and then reject them, he could be charged with capriciousness, which means that he would be characterized by a sudden impulsive actions or reactions, which means he'd be kind of like a human being in Adamic ontology. The biggest, one of the biggest problems we have is addressed, I believe, if I remember right, in Psalm 50, when the Lord says, you thought I was altogether like you are. We found out that Moses was becoming like him and that God is not like people. He doesn't choose a people as his inheritance, deliver them with his mighty arm, And pour out his wrath during the execution of his salvation in the service of his love. Just to reject his people when they get stiff-necked, hard-hearted, obdurate, and stubborn, which is pretty much what Israel did for hundreds of years. And so certain Gentiles say, well... These branches should be broken off and left off. And Paul said, well, what if God wants to graft them back on again? And he will. Because they're not going to, conce- they're not going to continue in a state of unbelief. They won't. We're headed toward that in Romans eleven twenty-two. We tend to also consider God's wrath as an explosive anger that bursts forth like a child's or better, a not-yet-grown-up adult's temper tantrums. But God's wrath is always in the service of his love. It's always a divine action against that which would destroy human beings or hinder their salvation. So that which would destroy human beings is a satanic evil. As Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2.16, these men seek to hinder me from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. And then in 1 Thessalonians 2.18, he talks about Satan hindering him from getting to Thessalonica. So there's a deeply demonic element in the prevention of the gospel of the grace of God. There's a deeply demonic motivation. Again, you can compare 1 Thessalonians 2.16 with 2.18. But let's continue. Romans 11.4. But what was the divine response to him? 
I have on reserve for myself. I know this is repetition, but the things that are coming forth from it are not repetition. I have on reserve for myself 7,000 men who have not bent the knee to Baal. Paul's response to the question, has God forsaken his people whom he has previously chosen, which is an emphatic no, the strongest no you can get from Paul, Meganoito, but even that emphasis is surpassed by the God of Israel's response to Elijah. It came in the form of an oracle, krematismos. It came in the form of an intimation to Paul, word for word from God, an audible word from the still small voice of God to Elijah. And so we should treasure this oracle as it was passed on to us. I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bent the knee to Baal. So as Elijah's complaint was a plea to Yahweh against Israel as a whole, notice 11.2b, it was against Israel. Paul says in 11.2, in the second part, how Elijah pleads with God against Israel. He's talking here against Israel as the whole people. Israel as a whole. And then compare that, if you're in Romans 11.20, 11 to 26. And so, or and then, and so, and then, all Israel will be saved. Elijah's plead, pleading, his plaintive plea against Israel is against all of Israel, except for him. I alone am left. So you can build a new Israel on me. Is what he's saying, essentially. The prophets don't get off scot-free in the scriptures. They're, the Bible is very, the Bible isn't into hagiography, which is a sanitized version of the heroes of the faith. And that's what we've done. We do that with the founders of our nation. We have sanitized versions of the stories of their lives. Then we build monuments to them. And then there's controversy about those monuments. And we have that today. And you're not going to find out what side politically I come down because my, one of my main goals as a pastor is to remain apolitical, a non-political. Because I am seeing things that go beyond the flag of nations or the flags of nations. And it's the banner of the cross of Christ more than a patriotic impulse, and I do have a love for my country. But more than that, I have a knowledge of God's intent to save. And that his salvific intent isn't just directed toward my people, my country, my race, my ethnicity, but all mankind. In this, I think I identify with Paul who was quite definitely a universalist in terms of salvation. 
I've come to that conclusion now, 94 messages in. But let's continue. As Elijah's complaint was a plea to Yahweh against Israel as a whole, 11.2, so Yahweh's response to his prophet was regard, with regard to Israel as a whole, ultimately, Romans 11.26. The remnant which God reserved for himself, listen carefully, This is extremely important interpretive point. The remnant which God reserved for himself was evidence of his intention to have salvific mercy on all of Israel. This oracle of God then disclosed his great intention to save all of Israel. And this was opposed, and how gentle God is to Israel, and how gentle he is to Elijah even. He doesn't blast him out of the air and knock him back. And In fact, the whole thing is preceded by certain signs that sign seekers would seek. There was a hurricane or a whirlwind, a tornado, and God said, do you see that tornado? You think God is in the tornado? He wasn't in the tornado. A wind that broke rocks to pieces. God wasn't in that. There was a fire came down. There was all kinds of natural wonders happened. And then God wasn't in any of those things. But then he spoke with a still voice. A small voice. A voiceless voice. An inaudible voice. Impression, we could say. Not really audible, but an inaudible impression. He's in his word. I have on reserve, I've reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not genuflected to Baal. That had more power to it than a blast of tornadic wind. The oracle of God, about the 7,000, disclosed his great intention to save all of Israel and was opposed to Elijah's desire that all of Israel, with the exception of himself, be punished. If Elijah, at the point of his plea against Israel, had heard instead, imagine if he had heard instead God's proposal to Moses. Let's destroy thee. Let me get out of my way. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill them all and start all over with you. The reason I started with Exodus 32 is I think if Elijah was proposed that proposal, he would have said, okay, good idea. Thumbs up, God, thumbs down on them. That was the whole point of beginning with Exodus 32, which is kind of a twist. And if your mind is filled with the Old Testament scriptures, then you eventually, you could say you have the mind of Christ, whose mind was filled with the Old Testament scriptures. There's an unlimited creativity that you can use in the scriptures, you see. So if Elijah at this point of his plea against Israel had heard God's proposal to Moses, 
in Exodus 32, 9 to 10, he might well have taken him up on it. But we must recognize that God was not proposing to Moses the destruction of Israel at all. This is an example of crass literalism versus a metaphorical way of viewing God. Instead, what God was doing was revealing to us today's readers of the Old Testament scriptures. And we should be readers of the Old Testament scriptures. Again, in 1 Corinthians 10, 11 and Romans 15, 3 and 4, that Moses had been conformed to Yahweh's own thinking about Israel in his response. How can you do that? You can't do that. They're your people. You, you delivered them by a divine action. The divine action of a lamb slain forecasted in the lamb being slain on the Passover Seder. You delivered them through a miraculous act that man could never have delivered himself from no matter how evolution made him better and better. And so God was not proposing to Moses the destruction of Israel, nor would he have carried it out if Moses had affirmed it. Instead, he was revealing to us today that Moses had been conformed to Yahweh's own thinking about Israel. So Moses could later say, God is going to raise up from you and from the midst of you a prophet like myself. Like myself, he too would say, blot me out instead. He too would say, don't blot them out. He too would stand in mediation, only he'll be much greater than me, Moses said. He was revealing that Yahweh could never reject the people whom he had previously foreknown, the people who were his own inheritance from last week, 1 Samuel twelve twenty-two. Yahweh will not reject his people because of his great name. His great name happens to be Jesus. Yahweh saves. That's what he does. And because it has pleased the Lord to make you his own people. Psalm 94, 14. Septuagint 93, 14. Yahweh will not reject his people or abandon his own inheritance. God's previous knowledge of Israel was disclosed dramatically in the deliverance which he himself orchestrated and brought about. In this case, his choice or previous choice of Israel was not a choice he made in eternity past, but a choice he made right in the time of history to choose this people, to select this people, to demonstrate this through this people the salvation of all of creation by God's outstretched hand. Two things are revealed in the Exodus. Only God could have done it and man could not have done it. All Israel collectively could not have done it. And so the points I'm making are going to start coming now. God's previous knowledge of Israel was disclosed dramatically in the deliverance which he himself orchestrated in their exodus from Egypt. 
It was a deliverance which could never have been brought about by any human being, including Moses. And it's a deliverance that could never be successfully prevented by any human being, including Pharaoh with his own claim to deity and all his gods, the gods Elohim of Egypt. Moreover, when God brought Israel out of Egypt, he did so with great wrath on Pharaoh. Exodus 20, 33 talks about it. And the nation of Egypt and their gods, there it is, wrath. I love the fact that wrath is all through the scriptures. Check the word wrath and see how many times it's used in the scriptures. I love it because wrath is in the service of God's love. It's an element of his love. So listen carefully. When God brought Israel out of Egypt, which was an enslavement, he did so with great wrath on Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt and their gods, which are demons. 1 Corinthians 10.21 But does this wrath, which is executed in the act of deliverance, Spell the eternal damnation of Pharaoh and of Egypt, whom in Romans 9, God made a vessel of wrath fitted for destruction. Does this spell the eternal damnation of Pharaoh and of Egypt? Isaiah answers that plainly in Isaiah 19:25, Reaching out even beyond us in history, Yahweh says this, the Lord of hosts will bless them, saying, quote, Blessed be Egypt, my people. Assyria, my handiwork. And Israel, my inheritance. But Israel's your inheritance. Egypt has to go to hell. No, Egypt are my people. Egypt is my people. I will restore the fortunes of Sodom. Ezekiel 16.55 Assyria though, yeah, my handiwork you mean? My masterpiece through resurrection? I'll make them a people. So to get back to the main point, the remnant of 7,000 men was a kind of pledge of the total salvation of Israel, even as the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, even if we can't detect that presence some days, is a pledge or a down payment, Ephesians 1.13 to 14, on our final eschatological salvation in bodily resurrection. And that's also brought up in Romans eleven fifteen b when Paul talks about Israel's temporary being set aside and their restoration, which is life from the dead in resurrection. As the Holy Spirit is a seal for us today until the day of the redemption of our very bodies in Ephesians 4.30 and Romans 8.23, so this reservation by God of a remnant was a kind of seal on all of Israel, 
pointing forward to her total salvation. That's what prolepsis is. Quits it. Anticipation of universal restoration. Call it apocatastasis if you want. But in the message Sunday, I call, I'd rather call it anakephaliosis. I think anakephaliosis is a better word than apocatastasis, even as rectification is a better word than justification. And no, I just didn't get the gift of tongues. So, very importantly, All Israel will be saved. Pas in the Greek. Pas. P-A-S. All without exception will be saved. When the totality of the pagans comes in. Pleroma. Pleroma is utter fullness with nothing left out. And so Pas, Israel, all of Israel, and the Pleroma of the pagans, the Pleroma or the pagan Pleroma, equals the human race in toto, which is in total agreement with Romans 5, 12 to 21, especially 5, 18 to 19, which is entirely in agreement with Romans eleven thirty two, First 1 Corinthians 15, 22, in Christ all will be made alive, 2 Corinthians 5, 14, when Christ died for all, all died, and in 2 Corinthians 5:19, far from forsaking him, God was in Christ on the cross, reconciling the world to himself. He has not left me alone, Jesus said. So when you hear me say, my God, why have you forsaken me? Know that that does not mean that he has left me alone. But that I am identifying in the depths of suffering with a desperate creation. And becoming sin. Total agreement also with First Timothy two, four through six, First Timothy four, nine and ten. Titus 2.13, the grace of God has appeared. That's the irresistible invasion of God has occurred. Which is this, salvation for all humanity. That's the name of the invasion. That's the name of the invasion. The Normandy invasion on D-Day of June of 1944 was with a view to the liberation of France and all Europe. The invasion, the irresistible invasion of divine grace in two divine missions, the heart of which is the crucified Messiah, is with a view to the salvation of all of humanity and all of creation, ultimately in Romans eight nineteen to 23. Have time for a few more points. Ultimately, we are not to see the whole of humanity saved by God. We don't see the whole of humanity saved by God. We don't see it without looking through the lens of the crucified Messiah, without looking through the eyes of Jesus Christ, who when he sees humanity, he does not see a group or a series of hated ethnic distinctions. 
He sees the fields ripe for harvest in John 4. We have to see with those eyes. Seeing with the eyes of the crucified Messiah, the response is, Father, forgive them. Seeing with the eyes of imperfect man and interpreters of Paul from their high perch, which is too high to see. We don't see the total salvation. The salvation of all the human race is not the ultimate vision, however. The ultimate vision is of Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance, who ultimately comprises the entirety of the human race. In fact, he already does, in one sense, already but not yet. The ultimate vision is of Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance, who ultimately comprises the entirety of the human race as Adam once did. The reservation by the God of Israel of 7,000 men, which was the pivot on which the national return to God occurred, a national return to God occurred because of the turning of a pivot, the turning of those 7,000 to God, which God does the turning. Turn me and I shall be turned. Jeremiah 32, 19, 18 and 19. He grants repentance in Acts eleven eighteen. He leads you to repentance by his benevolence in Romans 2, 4. It doesn't matter who says that there, the teacher or Paul, it's true. God reserving for himself 7,000 men means he saved by grace and through the fidelity of his son, a remnant which became the pivot upon which the whole nation turned. And that's a picture of the church. Now listen carefully. Some fine points. The reservation by the God of all Israel of 7,000 men, which was the pivot on which the national return to God occurred in that time in history, is matched and even exceeded by a remnant of Israelite believers in Jesus Christ as Messiah in Paul's day. Even now, Paul says in 55 AD or thereabouts, even earlier, there exists a remnant by the election of grace. And if, if it's grace, it's no more works. It's not your piety. It's not your cultus. It's not your commitment to works. There exists a remnant. So it's matched and exceeded by a remnant of Israelite believers in Jesus in Paul's day, which Paul rightly considered to be a kind of forecast or prolepsis of the total salvation of Israel. The 7,000 was a prolepsis, an anticipation of the salvation of the whole of Israel in the same way that the present remnant of Jewish believers, which continues to our time, is a prolepsis of the salvation of all of Israel. But listen carefully. The church, ecclesia, which is the body of Christ at present, consisting of former Jews and former Gentiles who are saved by grace 
and through a fidelity that is Christ's alone is a prolepsis or an anticipation of a universal community of humanity in Christ in which Israel and all the nations will with one mouth glorify God through Jesus Christ. Romans 15, 6 and following, there's a cascade of verses there that supports this. So now we're ready to, see I'm just running the iron over the passage again just to get it a little flatter here. But in Romans eleven five, in the same way then, there is a remnant at the present time when Paul wrote, chosen by grace, Now, if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So then, anticipating, teaching from tomorrow night, perhaps, the second rhetorical question is then presented by the apostle in 1170. He says, what then? Ti'un, what then? Israel did not find what it was looking for. But the elect... Or the remnant obtained it. The rest were hardened. So the answer to the what then question is that Paul had already posited in Romans 9.30 to 33. Let's go back there as we close. Romans 9.30 to 33. See he's thinking. He's held this thought since 9.31. And he's held that thought since 9.1. Nine thirty-one to 32 talks about Israel who kept pursuing the Torah. And this is my expanded translation. They kept pursuing the law, the Torah, that seems to offer deliverance, but they did not reach what the Torah seemed to offer because they did not seek this deliverance. Guess what phrase is used here now? Ek pistios. Ek pistios, on the basis of the faithfulness of Christ, but instead by ex ergon, on the basis of their works according to their own system of piety. Thinking that deliverance or righteousness, here defined as deliverance, would come to them as a reward for their performance of good deeds or on the basis of their own works of piety. Stumbling, therefore, over the stone that makes people stumble. As it is written, look, I am placing in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble. And we're going to find out that Israel's stumbling wasn't so that she fell headlong and permanently, but it was a temporary stumbling until all the Gentiles came in and then God saves all the Jews. A stone that causes people to stumble is petron scandalon, stone of scandal. Same word used for the cross in Galatians 5.11. The cross, the scandal. The Jews seek a sign. The Greeks seek philosophical wisdom as a means of salvation. God gives them both the word of the cross. To the Jews, an offense. To the Greeks, just plain stupidity. The Greeks thought it was as, the cross was as stupid as ESPN taking a guy away from announcing 
basketball because his name was Robert Lee, whose heritage is Chinese. Just like Aaron Judge hits a home run, there's no metrics to measure it. There's no metrics that can measure that stupidity. There's no metrics. There's no measure. I know they've got little plans, but I just happened to see that today, and I'm kind of sad that I looked up long enough to see that on mute. I should have kept right looking at Ernst Kosman, Romans 8, or Romans 11, and Romans 15. I'm almost done with that. But it illustrates the point here. The Jews think it's absolutely stupid. That salvation would come through a brutally shamefully crucified man. And then it says, all who rely on him, notice the word stone is now called a person, stone, which is all relying upon his faithfulness will not be disappointed. This is a conflation of Isaiah 8, 14 and 28, 16. So in closing, relying on Messiah's fidelity, which is what you do, I think, most of you now, doesn't disappoint you because the desired deliverance comes from his faithfulness. Relying on one's works, which are prescribed in Torah, for example, leads to disappointment and even to shame. In fact, there is a specific shame in the neglect of the shameful crucifixion of Jesus. There is a shame in the neglect of the shameful crucifixion of Jesus as the very source and means of deliverance. So the remnant is such, that is, the remnant is the remnant, by unconditional grace. By the gospel, which has elicited faith in Messiah's faithfulness. Because this grace results in the unconditional rectification of the ungodly it can be expected that the entirety of humanity will be likewise rectified, even the most stubborn, even those most afflicted with the twofold symptom of an evil heart of unbelief and sclerosis, hardening of the heart. We know from Revelation, over and over again, we know from Revelation, Rev the book, that every eye will see the pierced flesh of Yahweh in the crucified God-man, Christ Jesus. And then all those who will have neglected God's giving of his son and of himself with his son, which is what happened, in such a way for all humankind, they will be fully overwhelmed by God and caused to praise him for the, this mighty deliverance, which he himself has wrought. A deliverance that could never have come from the human side or from any evolutional development of humankind. Never could have. What Israel in the main sought for, they didn't find, because no one will ever find or obtain deliverance or salvation by the works of Torah, or by human piety, or morality, or by any system of ethics, so-called. Deliverance is obtained by the faithfulness of Messiah, whether one is a Jew, or a pagan, or a barbarian. 
What Israel in, in the main pursuit, it did not catch. But the pagans found what they weren't even looking for. Someone tracks a deer all day long, which is what I used to do a lot, track them. I knew I was great at tracking them. Getting them and shooting them? Never. So I track a deer all day long like I did one time in Vermont. Tracked it and then all of a sudden I spooked it at the last minute and then boom, somebody else shot it. So I know what the Israelites felt like. All day long I'm hunting for a prey that I never catch and somebody, the deer walks right into them. Thanks to me, thanks to Israel's unbelief, the deer walks right into the Gentiles. Boom, they shoot them. It's free. It just happened to them. The only thing I had left at the end of that day was I did a good job tracking because I finally pushed the deer right into somebody else. But anyways, in closing, therefore, what do we have here? What Israel in the main pursued, it didn't catch. But the pagans found what they weren't even hunting for and overtook prey they weren't even hunting for. Why? Because God's grace is grace. That's why. And that means that it's unconditional. If the remnant is that by works, then grace is no longer what it is in essence and in act, which is unconditional. If salvation is by works, then it is by fulfilling a two-way contract, stipulations of a contract. If it is to be grace, and it is, then it's unconditional promise of God to Abraham and to his seed, which is Christ. Therefore, a promise to Abraham is a promise to all of Israel. As we're going to see later in Romans, he works this magnificently. A promise to Abraham is therefore a promise to all of Israel and to all of humanity and all of creation for that matter because God is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And therefore, he is God of the living and not of the dead who are commemorated with statues and sanitized histories. Later in Romans 11, Paul actually compares the patriarch, patriarchs, whom I call A, I, and J, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the root which sanctifies the branches. If the root is holy and God has sanctified the root, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because of the fruit of the root, which is Christ. If the root is holy, then so are the branches, even the broken off branches. And so all Israel will be grafted in again. All of this is, is just like a locomotive. It just carries you. You can't stop this train. It's the logos. It's the word. And therefore, he's God of the living. Later in Romans 11, Paul will actually compare these patriarchs to the root that sanctifies the branches and the first fruits that sanctifies the whole batch or the whole harvest. And in Deuteronomy, Moses constantly reminds the people of this. He said, because God loved your fathers, he promises blessing to their descendants. Because God loved the patriarchs, he promises his descendants salvation. But it all centers in Christ, who is from the line of the patriarchs. And Christ is the first fruits, and so the whole harvest is made holy. So the upshot of this is that if Christ is holy, then all are holy, all the human race. 
And this happens to be true, and this is God's own doing. It is God's own doing, not ours, and it's marvelous in enlightened eyes. Enlightened eyes say it's marvelous, Psalm 118, 23. And that's why Paul ends up with Romans eleven thirty three to thirty two uh, thirty six rather. This happens to be true, therefore, that if Christ is holy, then the whole of humanity is holy, because it's God's own doing. First Corinthians one thirty, a magnificent verse. He has made Christ to be for us holiness or sanctification. So our salvation in a word, even as Doug Campbell said, the gospel in a word is sanctification. He's right. Our salvation in a word is sanctification. Our salvation is the sanctification that is in Christ Jesus. In fact, our salvation is Jesus who is our sanctification. 1 Corinthians one we're done. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. And we now recognize something about, in recognizing something magnificent about Christ, we recognize something about the church, that it's a prolepsis, an anticipation of a total salvation of humanity. So we are not the, the end, but the beginning of a renewal of all things. The church is not the whole of the new creation but the prolepsis of the universal new creation. So it is an astonishing and astounding privilege that we are the church. But it doesn't mean that we're the end all and catch all of all things by a long shot. It means that we're the beginning. 